pray before we begin. Lord, we've uh, both sung great truth tonight and we've heard great truth from your word. You are holy. Sin is disastrous. But you are merciful and kind. And so we, your people, look to you, the merciful and gracious God, the holy God. We praise you. And Lord, we ask once again that you would lavish your kindness upon us. Lord, speak powerfully tonight, we pray, through your word, by your spirit, and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was listening to a Radio 4 um, broadcast, uh, documented, it was released in 2018, so it was a bit old, and it was called The Future of Sin. And in it, uh, two reporters were interviewing various people, religious leaders, um, and actually a number of technologies, futures experts working with MIT and, and Cambridge. And what, do they want, what do they wanted to do was to understand the idea of sin in a culture where the advancement of technology is so rapid. Uh, one of the guys on the podcast itself said, um, take a sin like greed. He made this argument. He said, because of apps that monitor things like health and hunger and nutrition, this development in technology is essentially doing away with what we once understood to be sin. I was struck by another one of the comments which said that uh, things that were sin 100 years ago, and he gave a number of examples to do with sexuality, he said, they're not now. And in 100 years who knows what sin would look like? The argument was essentially, because of the development of technology and the ch shifting understanding of culture, sin itself is changing. And I wonder, is that the way you understand sin? Is the standard of what counts to be sin changing, shifting, a bit like the culture around us? Well, the passage that was helpfully read to us tonight by Lucy um, gives us a very different understanding than those Radio 4 broadcasters. Uh, it gives us an understanding of the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. So let's buckle up and jump into our next portion of Joshua. Uh, let's just upload the GPS of where we are in Joshua. Let's kind of orient ourselves. We've entered a, a new phase in the unfolding of this book. The promise-keeping God has been faithful in enabling Israel, his people, to, to cross over into the promised land. And their task now is to take the land. Last time, you'll remember, if you were here, we witnessed the unstoppable God, that there was no natural barrier like the Jordan River. There was no man-made structure like the double-hemmed wall of Jericho that could stop the unfolding of this promise-keeping God, keeping his promises. And so surely then the rest of the land, the taking of the land, should be game, set, and match, right? We're going to look under, at this text under one heading, one main idea. It's this, sin is serious. It spreads. It leads to destruction. Put it to death. Sin is serious. It spreads, and it leads to destruction. Put it to death. Now, I'll be using the word sin a number of times Tonight, and so I thought a definition might be helpful before we start. 
Um, though there are many different words that the Bible uses to describe sin, this was the kind of simplest definition that I could find that was helpful for our purposes tonight. It's this. Sin is primarily a wrong relationship with God, which expresses itself in wrong attitudes, wrong actions, towards God himself, and towards other human beings. It's primarily a wrong relationship with God, which expresses itself in wrong attitudes and actions towards God himself and towards other human beings. Okay, let's jump in with that headline out of the way, um, with that definition out of the way. Um, Headlines are catchy, aren't they? Uh, In a few short words or a, a, a quick phrase, a headline is designed to encapsulate the whole story. Tabloid newspapers and social media sites work extremely hard to grab your attention with that headline. It's got to be succinct. It's got to be accurate. Look at me at verse 1, because this tonight is our headline. We've got the problem, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. We've got a problem. We've got the perpetrator. He's named with four of his generation. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. We've got the problem, we've got a perpetrator, and we've got the product. And therefore, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And this this headline is going to color the rest of the account that we dig into in Joshua. And it's not a good hue. If we jumped into the narrative at verse 2, Joshua sending men to spy out a city, you'd be forgiven for anticipating a positive end. If you were with us last time, it reminds us very much um, of Joshua chapter 2. Joshua sent spies into the land of Jericho, and it was a very positive result. But we've got to remember verse 1, remember our headline. Geography often reflects theology in the Bible, and so these men go to Ai, or I. We don't know how we pronounce it. It's fine. And that actually means the ruin. Okay, so these people go to the ruin, which is near a place called Beth-Avon, which means house of idols or wickedness particularly ominous, right? They're going to a place called Ruin. It's right near the house of idols, the house of wickedness. There's a question raising in our mind, will this place be the ruin of Israel? Again, verse 3, it sounds great initially if you read it on its own. The, the Israel's enemy are outmatched numerically. And so the, 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 the spies come back, don't send all the troops, boss, don't worry. This is going to be easy. Probably what Germany thought about Japan, or what Wales thought about Georgia, or what Wales thought about Iran. There's a common theme here. They thought it would be easy. If you read it on its own, you might think this sounds encouraging. But actually, remember the headline. We read it in light of that. Nowhere in this passage is the Lord mentioned. At no point does anybody decide to pray. Not even Joshua inquires of the Lord. So in the shadow of verse 1... It sounds much more like arrogance, verse 3, than assurance. And actually, in Joshua, the theme of God's people moving out as one unit is significant. And so branching off into separate parts is also ominous. And this wouldn't be the first time that Israel, led by Joshua, would act presumptuously. And it doesn't take long, does it, for the fruit of this to be produced. No sooner had they set out on this seemingly straightforward skirmish. But verse 4, this division, they return both defeated and dejected. They've been chased away and they return 36 men down with a spirit of absolute 
fear. And this is no ordinary fear. If you look at verse 5, this is the terror of the Lord. Their hearts not only melted in fear, but they became like water. The blessing of Israel's God's presence with his people has actually been inverted, turned on its head. The judgment of terror that should have fallen on Israel's enemies has now fallen on Israel herself. Even courageous Joshua, in his prayer, in verses 6 to 9, it sounds a lot less like it did last time in chapter 6, verse 16, where he said, Shout, for the Lord has given you victory of the city. Sounds much more like the grumbling from the wilderness generation, doesn't he? Why? Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan, verse 7? Longing for the other side of the Jordan is never a good thing. Has even Joshua forgotten how it was the arm of the Lord who had separated the swelling river and brought them into the land? Yet Joshua's mourning was, it was meaningful, but it was misplaced. And that verse, six, uh, verse 10 tells us that. The Lord said, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Now is no time for a prayer meeting. And in response to Joshua's question, why, why, Lord, the Lord gives him a five-fold answer in verse 11, doesn't he? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. And they have put them with their own possession. So here lies the problem. What we as the reader were introduced in verse 1 is now revealed to Joshua. Verse 12. The reason Israel can't stand, the reason that they've turned their backs uh, to their enemies, the reason that they have been made liable to destruction is stated twice in verses 11 and 15. Israel have violated my covenant, the Lord says. They've broken God's law. They've sinned. They've trashed his word. They've ignored his commandments. How? Well, it told us in verse 1, but they've taken some of the devoted things. What are they, you ask? Good question. Uh, We touched on this again briefly last time, but Israel were warned to stay away from the devoted things. If you cast your eyes down at chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, Um, Joshua warns the people to stay away from these devoted things. And this law is found back in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 27, 28 and 9 says this, But no devoted thing shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted to destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. And so the word that's behind this word devoted in the Hebrew is the word harem. One writer describes it like this. Harem is the, the negative side of being set apart, being holy, being set apart for, for, for God's special purposes. So the people or the possessions that come under this term harem, they are used for a special purpose, but it's not a good one. It's often destruction. And in the case of Jericho, The city and its spoils and its people were to come under this harem, under this ban. Israel were to be a holy instrument of justice in God's hand, much like the angel of death in Egypt, much like the floodwaters in the case of Noah, and they were to bring justice to this repulsive people. The nations of Canaan were a people free with their sexuality, that would sacrifice their children in fire. 
and their sin had been brought to the full, and now God was executing justice upon them. So Israel were to bring these people under Haram, but now because of their sin, they have found themselves under this same problem, under this same curse. Now, the severity of what's taken place washes over Joshua. And we see something of his urgency, don't we, in verse 16. He rises early the next morning to enact this kind of strange-sounding ceremony that the Lord has called him to do. He does exactly what the Lord says. I mean, try and picture the scene, verses 17 and 18. All of Israel, all of the tribes before Joshua, maybe it's lots that are cast, and the tribe of Judah is chosen. And of all the clans of Judah... The Zerites were chosen. And of all those families amongst those clans, Zimri was chosen. And as each member, family member came forward, finally, Achan was chosen. And eventually, what was known to us, the reader, is revealed to Joshua and to the rest of God's people. And it's only now that Achan's willing to confess his sin. Let's not mistake verse 20, um, his being caught with genuine repentance. In fact, his, his confession actually betrays his heart motive. Um, you'll see in verse 20, he uses the term plunder to describe the items that he, that he stole from Jericho. And now in the ancient Near East, and as, as well as in Israel, plunder was fair game. Plunder, the riches gained through war, Israel could take. But by calling plunder what God had called devoted, Achan reveals his presumption. He thinks that this stuff was his right. So this is not some minor mistake. This is willful, conscious rebellion. This is knowing God's word and directly disobeying it. And I think there's a tragic irony in verse 21 particularly. These things were hidden in the ground. He couldn't even enjoy them. The things that caught his eye, the things that caused his heart to lust after them, the things that led him to spurn God's word, to doubt his goodness, to deny his character were buried in dirt, solid. This is such a picture of sin. The glittering promises in the end in the dirt. Where his treasure was, there his heart was also. And as we see later, there his body will be. And what a contrast, if you remember, to Rahab, right? The background of these two people could not be any more different. One was a Canaanite prostitute of a people condemned the other was an Israelite from the tribe of Judah, no less. One of them took and hid spies. The other one, in faithlessness, took and hid stuff that he shouldn't have touched. One confessed a desire to be part of God's people, proclaimed his majesty and holiness and power. Achan confessed his desire for what he shouldn't have had. And I think this shows us that it's not all about ethnicity in God's Old Testament people, but it's how one responds to God and to his promises. Being of the line of Judah did not do Achan any favors because he didn't appropriate God's promises with faith and obedience. And I think just as a side note of application, you can have all the heritage in the world. You could be growing up in a Christian home. You could be coming to a faithful gospel-preaching church. You could be going to Rooted, to the Uniformed Organization, Scripture Union. You could be attending every single event that is put on, and it means absolutely nothing 
it means nothing unless it is grounded in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Achan's sin found him out. And all that is left now is for Joshua and to Israel to execute justice. That's what they do in verse 24. Joshua, together with all Israel, they took Achan, his silver, uh, the robe, the gold bar, sons, daughters, oxen, donkeys, sheep, his tent, and all that he had. Repetition of seven there, complete destruction. Verses 25 and 26, cast your eyes down. Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. And over Achan, they heaped a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. That punishment, the punishment of stoning him, it fits the crime connected with the worst crimes in Israel. Spiritual adultery, so the worship of false gods. Necromancy, the, the worship of the dead. And child sacrifice. You can see that again in Leviticus. Breaking God's word is serious. And this is a heavy passage. Uh, We don't often like to, um, or we certainly avoid the the what-if questions in church. What What if Achan could have seen the result of his sin? What if he hadn't have disobeyed? We kind of avoid questions like this because we don't really know. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but what is revealed to us is for us and for our children. So we don't ask the what-if questions, but we do ask about what we've, what's been revealed to us. We ask about what we do know, what God has revealed to us, and it's the devastating effects of sin. And I want to draw out a number of things from this passage that are revealed to us. Number one, sin is serious. Achan's sin is described in verse 15 as an outrageous thing. And this is a really unique phrase that's used to describe crimes of of, um, adultery and sexual crimes and idolatry. Because that's what Achan did, essentially. He committed idolatry, which is spiritual adultery. Uh, Sin in our culture is, is essentially made light of. It's laughed about, it's ignored. On television, it's dramatized. Uh, on the internet, it's sexualized. In advertising, it's monetized. In medicine, it's psychologized. And this actually has a numbing effect on us. It numbs us to its implications. And yet, this is particularly out in the culture, but it can happen here in the church as well. Uh, I saw a, a quote by someone, uh, Joni Erickson Tarder. She said this, um, talking about sin, and particularly in the culture, but it can apply to the church. She says, and gradually... Though no one remembers exactly how it happened, the unthinkable becomes tolerable, and then acceptable, and then legal, and then applaudable. God's word, properly read and properly taught, does not allow that to happen. We are brought face to face with the disgustingness and the effects of sin. Sin is serious, and God's people should take it seriously. Sin seduces. Notice that Achan's sin is described in exactly the same way as the sin in the garden. Have a look down with me. Um, There are three verbs that are used to describe Achan's sin in verse 20 by his own confession. That he saw, he coveted, and he took. And that's the same description of Eve in Genesis 3, chapter 6, where Eve saw the fruit. And the tree was good for food and was also desirable. It's the same word behind that. And for gaining wisdom, and she took some. 
These uh, three verbs are used a number of other places in the Old Testament uh, to describe a number of different sins. Somebody has described it as the, the archetypal sin, the foundational sin. So the sin of, of both Adam and Eve and Achan, it wasn't exclusively the fact that they took something that was forbidden. It was much more than that. It was a direct assault against God, against his rule. It was a rejection of his promises. It was a denial of his good character. And it was an assertion that my will be done, which is what all sin is, essentially. We see the fruit of sin seduction in this passage, don't we? We see it in the garden with the unfolding and the devastation of what's happened since then. It promises life, but it delivers death. That's what James chapter 1, verse 5 tells us. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. So what do we do? Well, firstly, I don't think it's insignificant that the gateway to these sins is the eyes. And so one thing we can do is just be wise about what we consume through our eyes. Ask this question, what is it that's glistening like gold in the corner of your eye at the minute? What temptation is promised to cover you like a beautiful robe from Babylonia? Is it the advances of a boy or a girl? Your reputation within a group that you just can't let go? Is it educational prowess or riches? Whatever it is that is looking to tempt you, to seduce you, it is a lie. It will never satisfy. It will not secure. Whatever it is that is promising you life and telling you the way to access it is away from the path of God, away from the path of following Jesus, away from God's word, it is a lie. And just like the garden and just like the valley of Achor, it will lead to death and destruction. And so we need to break the spell of sin seduction. What we need is what Eve needed. It's what Achan needed. We need the gospel preached to us. We need truth to cut across the false promises of the lies that these desires entice. We need the word of God preached to our heart and believed and appropriated by faith. You need to know that Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure, that he is incomparable, that riches are in him. You will not find security or satisfaction or significance anywhere outside of Christ. Sin and all of its, all of its dark hues promise this, but it's a lie. My goal is that you might be encouraged in heart and united in love so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Sin seduces. It promises only what God can give us in Christ. We need to preach to our hearts. Sin is serious. Sin seduces. Sin sends to hell. No, sin spreads, I think, is the next one. Sorry, sin spreads. So this is evident throughout this entire passage. Sin spreads. Firstly, the 36 dead soldiers. Secondly, Achan's family, who actually, if you cast your eyes down at verses 22 and 23, uh, the, the word tent is repeated three times and gives a hint or a suggestion that those within Achan's family tent may have been aware of the, the, the devoted stuff that was stolen. We don't want to make a major point of that, but they weren't. It seems that they weren't innocent in all this. But sin spreads its effect, but also its implications. 
Uh, you might have, if you uh, glance your eyes down at verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They, they, they. And this might sound actually quite strange to our individualistic ears. Hang on, one person sinned. How come they've all been implicated in this? But actually, it's not too hard to think about. We, we do understand this. Uh, the footballer that abuses his wife or his girlfriend implicates the rest of the team or the club. The prime minister that makes many, many poor and shambolic decisions that she represents implicates her nation. The TV network or the venue that allows a cancelled speaker, a platform itself, becomes implicated. So we do understand association by implication. We get this to an extent. And just as Achan's sin had implications upon Israel, so my sin and your sin can have implications upon us as a church body, as the church family. Serious sin, like the willful disobedience of God's word, sin that threatens the health of a church, whether it's abuse or sexual deviance, is to be rooted out like a rotten tooth. If you knew that there was a dangerous tumor in your body, it would be foolish and dangerous to ignore it. So it is with sin, and the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the Corinthian church, he gives us a, 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 a standard of what to do. Reminds the people there that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough, that sin does indeed spread, and therefore you must cast out the wicked person from among you. So practicing this aspect of church discipline is absolutely vital to the health of a church, and I'm pleased to say that we do do this here. It's for the good of the body and for the eternal hope of the person that's cast out. If a person remains in unrepentant sin, the elders here will remove them from membership. But the health of the body can start much earlier than the point of surgery. What can we do? Well, attend in church twice a week if you can. Uh, go into a small group and, and, and opening up and being vulnerable. Engaging with God's word regularly, daily, reading it and praying. These are means of grace that God will use to keep you from sin, to remind you of his holiness, of his goodness, of his promises. But then where sin does manifest itself, the Lord Jesus has given us instruction on how we can maintain the health of our church. Matthew 18, 15 reads this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. So as a member of this body, you have a responsibility to monitor the health of the body. In love, we can bring the knowledge of our brother or sister's sin to their attention. And in faith, knowing that God will use that revealing as a means of grace to lead them to repentance and to put that sin to death. Sin spreads, and so we speak God's word to one another. Sin sends to hell. So verses 22 and 23, the messages are sent, and they find out Achan's confession to be true. And so they bring before Joshua, and they spread the evidence before the Lord, laid bare for all to see. The account of Achan reminds me of um, the truth in he Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, which says, Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Sin will find us out in the end, in this life or the next. Achan could have confessed during any of the tribes or the clans or the families coming forward, but he didn't. 
I don't know whether he hoped that the passage of time might just pass him by or that the lot might fall on somebody else. And so I want to say this. If you are playing, brother and sister, if you are playing with sin and thinking that you're not going to get caught, flee from it. Let this passage be a stark warning that everything will be laid bare before the Lord and before all to see. The right the end of unrepentant sin is judgment, justice, and hell, which is separation from God forever. Lastly, sin requires sacrifice. The real problem with sin is that God is holy. The real problem with wrongdoing is that God, in all that he does, is right and just. And in all of this, in all that Achan did, in all that we do in our sin, we downplay the holiness of God. We don't think that disobeying God or breaking his commandments, disobeying his word, is worthy to think about. And the truth is, we're all here in this room. We're all Achans, aren't we? We've all broken God's word. We've all desired things. We've lusted after things. We've seen things that we shouldn't. And we've either taken them physically or we've desired and done it in our hearts. We've all asserted ourselves in the place of God. We've made created things, whether it's gold, money, sex, status. We've placed it in the place of God. And the Bible tells us that the, the wages of this sin, the wages of this disobedience is death. That's the sentence that we're under. Naturally, in ourselves, like Achan, we are devoted to destruction. And so the question is, what is our hope? I was meeting with some of the, the rooted uh, guys before this, and he got to the end of the passage, and he said, I just felt really hopeless when I read to the end of this passage. And in, in some ways, I think that that's, um, that's one response from it. And so it's right to answer, ask the question, where is our hope? Well, remember the headline that we looked at? One of the products was that the Lord's anger burned. Um, when the judgment came upon Achan, they burned him. And we questioned, why, what's significant about the burning? Well, that burning is sacrifice language. Verse 25 is the language of sacrifice. Israel needed their sin dealing with. God's anger, for it to be turned away, needed sacrifice. Notice the name uh, that it was given, Valley of Trouble. It plays on words. Uh, trouble, Achor, sounds like Achan. And so, ironically, the place of trouble, the place that uh, sin was put to death, the place that justice was enacted, is called the Valley of Trouble. And yet that's the place, as verse 26 reminds us, that the, that the Lord turned from his fierce anger. It's at the place where justice happened that the Lord's anger turned away. The place of trouble became the place of hope. And that's the cross, brothers and sisters, right? The place where sin was decisively dealt with, the place where justice was finally uh, dealt with, where God's anger and wrath was turned away because sin was dealt with once and for all, the cross of Jesus Christ, the sinless one who became sin for us, is now the place where God's people find hope because it's there where there's forgiveness. Israel were right to take 
to take Achan outside of the camp of Israel and to, to, and to put sin to death. Jesus Christ himself taken out of Jerusalem and put to death, buried, but then raised again three days later. So the valley of trouble becomes the door of hope for those who look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's our hope. And I wonder if you know him. I wonder if you know Jesus. If you don't know him, uh, maybe you're visiting here, a friend's brought you. Um, I would love to talk to you. Please come and meet me. I'll, I'll be waiting uh, out the door after the service. I would love to have a conversation with you. Uh, we've got a number of things up and coming over the Christmas period where we can teach you more about uh, this, uh, this, this door of hope, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who took our sin and buried it away and now enables to bring us forgiveness in his resurrection because God's anger has been turned away. And so in the introduction, I asked, what is the future of sin? Um, the guys in the, the podcast would say, technology is going to, uh, to, to essentially eradicate sin. Well, I'd say uh, it's, it's nonsense, and the Bible says that's nonsense. The question of what's the future of sin depends on what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. It depends on what you do with what he has done in his life and death and resurrection. For some, the Bible says that uh, sin will be removed as far as the east is from the west. Praise God for that. But for others, if you cling on to your sin, if you cling on to your rebellion, that sin will take you to hell. And I don't want that. It's a heavy message. Will you respond like Achan? Or will you respond like Rahab? You've got a choice tonight. Let's pray. Just take um, a few minutes. Have a think about what you've heard, what you've read. Maybe tonight your heart is rejoicing because you, you know that forgiveness. You know that your sin has been dealt with. You know that though you should have been devoted to destruction, there was another who took your place. Give God praise for that. Maybe for you, you know that you're living in willful, rebellious sin. What you need to do is cry out to God for forgiveness. That's a cry that God is delighted to answer and to forgive you fully because of what Jesus Christ has done. Father, that thank you that in Christ our sin has been dealt with. Thank you that we can find forgiveness, that we should have come under destruction because of your great mercy, because of what the Lord Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection. Thank you that for those who cry out in faith, like Rahab, like many others, we can find full and sure forgiveness the promise of our sin being dealt with. Lord, help us to continue trusting you. Help us to not be deceived by sin's promises, its lies. But Lord, help us to walk in holiness. Help us to walk in obedience to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Please stand and sing as the musicians lead us.